Peter has just delivered a message at Pentecost, and I'll be reading from verse 41 of chapter 2 of Acts to the end of the chapter. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the patience and long suffering. We cannot, with the Grand Canyon, the size of the earth, with the size of the universe, we cannot compare you enough with what you've made to be able to praise you to a level you're worthy of. But when we understand more about our sin, it's much greater than any of us know. And in patience, you've put up with it moment by moment for all these years. We come here and see you joyfully wanting to save and help us to be more like you. Help us with your word this morning to see you and be changed again even more to be more like you so we can reflect you to the world. Be with Tom as he teaches and guide his words. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Good morning. We're in an, a pretty amazing little passage here that tells us what life was like in the very first local church that ever existed uh, and what it was like in the beginning of the life of that church. And that church, of course, was the church in Jerusalem. Um, even before the events that we see here in Acts chapter 2, <laughs> um, things started happening very quickly. And then in Acts chapter 2, after the Christ's resurrection and ascension, there's this amazing event that results in a 2,500% increase in the size of the church <laughs> in one day. Can you imagine if our church increased by 2,500% in one day? Uh, the spark had become a blaze. Uh, this huge, mostly Jewish crowd that had gathered for the, the feast at Pentecost had just seen a miraculous event, the likes of which no one had ever beheld before. And in that event, the Holy Spirit descended upon the twelve apostles in tongues of fire, and each of them spoke in languages that he had never learned. And the result was that every person, and there were many, many thousands, uh, mentioned before that Josephus actually puts the number in the millions that would come for these festivals, but it's probably more in the hundreds of thousands. A lot of people in Jerusalem uh, at the temple for the festival. And every single one of them, no matter where he was from in the, in the Roman Empire that included hundreds of different languages, each person heard 
the message of the mighty deeds of God in Christ in his own or her own language. It was stunning. If you think about, about the magnitude of that miracle, it's really stunning. Uh, immediately after that event, the Apostle Peter spoke with bold, forceful, and condemning words in uh, the sermon that we looked at a couple of, couple of times ago. Uh, he declared in that sermon that, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the very one whom this same multitude at the previous festival uh, at Passover, the same multitude had demanded be crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, that same person is the one who had caused that miracle because he's the one who, who poured forth the Holy Spirit upon the apostles so that this, what they had just seen happened. And, he, and Peter, of course, cites the prophet Joel to say that Joel was pointing forward to that event, that exact event, uh, 500 years earlier. And then they also heard Peter say that King David prophesied that this same Jesus would be raised from the dead and then exalted, ascended and exalted to, to his father's right hand. And he said, this Jesus whom you crucified is the one who has done all these things. So now imagine that you're in that crowd and you have heard repeatedly this, this man stand before you and say, this Jesus whom you crucified is the one who really is, is in charge of everything. He is the one who is sovereign over everything. He is the long-promised Messiah, Savior, and King of kings, to whom all of humanity is accountable. And with those words still ringing in their ears, this Jesus whom you crucified, many of them found that their hearts were pierced. And 3,000 of them came to faith that day. They, they first asked Peter, what shall we do? And then Peter told them. And of course, in, the, in Peter's proclamation, uh, his answer to their question that we saw before in verse 38, he said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved from this perverse generation. Last time we talked about the meaning, the significance of the, this set of exhortations that Peter set before this multitude and when they said, what shall we do? We saw that the repentance to which Peter commanded them is not a, it's not a move from sinful to sinless. It's not a move from sinful to sinning less. It is a turning from unbelief to belief. In both Testaments, the word repent means to turn to God from whatever has kept you from God, from whatever has gotten in the way between you and God. And when it comes to the gospel proclamation of Jesus, the call to repent is a call to turn away from whatever you are trusting in, whatever you are depending on, to make it well with your soul, to make it right between you and God, and to turn to Jesus and to him alone. The baptism 
that Peter commands here, the, the water baptism is the symbol, it is the picture of a substance, of a reality that had already happened in the 3,000 people who were baptized that day. By the time they were baptized, the real baptism had already happened because the real baptism was the Holy Spirit taking up residence in them, giving them new birth in Christ, identifying them with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. We find that in Romans 6. And, and then coming to live within them, to be uh, the source of their life and their power. So although the, the baptism was commanded, the baptism did not accomplish the salvation, and that's very, very important for us to understand. Now, the response of, the, uh, of this multitude was that 3,000 people were saved. It says that day there were added about 3,000 souls, and I take that to mean exactly what it says. It's not there were 3,000 people who professed faith. It was, there were 3,000 people whom God saved on that day and added. And they were continually devoting themselves then to four activities that we're going to look at up close here in a moment. Uh, what we find here is that the newborn church had a resoundingly good start. Uh, and, and many people see this passage that we're in this morning as kind of a template for what the church should look like in every age. And I think there's a lot, a lot to that that's correct. But before we move forward, I want to also point out that what we see in this chapter did not persist in exactly the way that we find it here. There were some things that actually had to change. You'll notice that at the very end of this passage in verse 47, it says that they had favor with all the people. These believers had favor with all the people. That means all the unbelievers. Now, that could not continue, right? If they had paid attention to what Jesus said in passages like John 15 and Matthew 10, they would realize that, that the slave is not greater than the master. And if they, if they declared that the master was acting in the power of Beelzebul, how much worse is it going to be for the, for the servants? If they hated Jesus, they will hate you also, Jesus said to his disciples, because they do not know the Father or the one whom he sent. So that uh, cultural acceptance was not going to last. Another thing that was not going to last is that this, this church of now about 3,120 people, the 3,000 were added to the 120, was made up almost exclusively of Jews because that's who was gathered in Jerusalem for the festival. Overwhelmingly. Now, there may have been a smattering of of a few Gentile proselytes in this new church, but even that, even they would have been eating the same foods and observing the same uh, religious practices as the Jews. So there was a, already a lot of kind of common ground in, in experience between all these people that were gathered in this group. That was not going to last. By the time we get to chapters 10 and 11, we find... <laughs> we find that there were some serious growing pains experienced by this very local church in Jerusalem. In fact, more so in this local church than possibly in any other local church when God started adding Gentiles to the fold who were not Jewish proselytes. So 
We shouldn't be too starry-eyed about what we find here. But with all that said, I definitely don't want to underplay the very positive tone of the description that Luke provides for us here of the newborn church. We should see the way of life that is, that is described in this passage as worthy of emulation and duplication in every age of God's people in every place in the world. And we pick up this morning in the same verse that we ended with last time, and that's verse 41, where, where Luke declares that 3,000 souls were saved. And he describes them as those who had received Peter's word. Then in verse, in verse 44, he describes that this group as all those who had believed. We talked about that a little bit last time. You look in John chapter 1, those who, those who, who received Christ, who received the gospel, are those who believe the gospel. And those are the ones who, whom God has saved. God brings them to that place of faith. All right. Um, verse 42 is an amazing verse. Whole books have been written on that one verse. And it, it is seen widely as kind of an in-a-nutshell description of what a healthy and vital New Testament church should look like. And again, I agree with that assessment as far as it goes. I, I think that the four activities that we see presented in this passage should absolutely endure, and they should be part of every church. They should be part of the experience of this church. They are, in fact, I think, the four most foundational activities that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. Verses 43 through 47, as we'll see, amplify those four points that are made in verse, in verse 42. So instead of putting an outline up here, I'm going to let you look at verse 42. There's your outline. And then we're going to talk about how the rest of these verses connect with that and amplify that. And we're going to look at a few other verses as well. Verse 42 says, And they, this church of about 3,120 believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. The phrase continually devoting is a very good way to translate the verb that's used here. The same verb is used in verse 46 when it says day by day they were continuing. Um, this, this verb speaks of continuity, of something that, that's going on and it keeps going on. It's not a one-shot deal. And we find, we find out as we look in the passage how continuous this was. There's a, a very interesting use of this same word in Acts chapter 10, and it's talking about, about the, the Gentile um, centurion named Cornelius. He was a commander of about 100 men in the Roman army. And that passage in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 7, it speaks of the soldiers who continually attended to Cornelius. It's this verb, same verb. They continually attended to Cornelius. 
Anything that Cornelius commanded, anything that Cornelius wanted, those men had to be there to take care of it, and all the time they had to be available and accessible to Cornelius. Well, that, that's a great, great explanation of the sense and the meaning of this word continually devoted, continually devoted. All right, so we've got these four activities. The first is the teaching of the apostles. They were continually devoted to the teaching of the apostles. There's a very good reason that the first activity that Luke presents that characterized the New Testament church, this brand new church, uh, is the one that matches up with the center pane of glass up there in the stained glass, uh, right at the top <laughs> of that pane. You see it, there's a, a representation of a Bible and then loving God and loving, loving others, loving people. All that's right here, by the way, in this passage. But there's a reason that that, that that's Bible is right there in the center pane. None of the Gospels, none of the epistles in the New Testament had yet been written. But God was already beginning to bathe his church in the teachings that we find in the New Testament and the teachings that we find in the Old. Whether Jew or Gentile, God's people have been saturated. God's intention is that His people will be saturated with the knowledge of His revealed Word. Uh, the Bible is a miraculous unity of God's witness to Jesus, the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, Son of God, and Savior of sinners. Both Testaments point to this one who is the, the perfect revelation of God and the perfect Savior. The truths that the, the 12 apostles were teaching in this local body are the same that we find in the Bibles that we carry around, some of us in hard copy and many of us on our phones and such. They were teaching that content before a lot of it was written down. But uh, one of the things I want to really make sure we get is that it was not just through the apostles that the apostolic teaching was propagated in the church. In the New Testament, in multiple spots, we see, we see that the teaching that the apostles imparted to the church was being spread by one Christian to another Christian. In fact, by every Christian to all other Christians. This is part of the life of the body that's critical for what, what uh, Luke is describing here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, turn there for a minute if you've got your Bibles. Ephesians 4, and listen to what the Apostle Paul says about speaking the truth, the truth that he later says is in Christ. 4.14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body... And then listen to this, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, 
according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then a little later on, he, he says again, verse 25, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The truth that he's talking about isn't just a bunch of factual information. He's talking about the truth that is in Christ Jesus. That's, uh, that is in verse 21, same passage. The truth that is in Christ. We should never be apologetic about the critical importance of true biblical doctrine in Christian life and godliness and usefulness. We should never be confused about the fact that each one of us is called to speak true doctrine to one another. That's every believer's call. Love-driven encouragement of the church of God by the church of God is not the responsibility merely of apostles nor of church leaders. It is the responsibility of every child of God. That's why uh, in the next chapter of Ephesians, chapter 5, when Paul describes a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit, what does he say? Look at that. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's how that manifests itself. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Bump over to Colossians, a couple of books later, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The you is plural, within y'all. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it sounds like Ephesians singing with thankfulness to your hearts, in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Luke is being very deliberate here in Acts 2 when he puts the word of the apostles in the first position among the four activities that characterize the brand new church of Jesus Christ. Just a few verses later, a little bit later in uh, a few, couple of chapters later in Acts 5, the same Sanhedrin, the same Jewish court that, that uh, demanded that Pilate crucify Jesus said to the disciples, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Wow, what a statement. <laughs> if only they knew the significance of their words. Oh, that his blood would be on me. And it is, praise God. But not the way they were talking about it. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Man, they, this new church could wear that as a badge of honor. 
It was supposed to be an accusation, <laughs> but they could wear that as a badge of honor. All right, before we move to the second activity of the church in this passage, I want you to notice Luke's parenthesis in verse 43 of Acts 2. He says, everyone kept feeling a sense of fear. Your translation might say awe. It's the word phobos from which we get phobia. It's the, it's the primary New Testament word for fear, and it means fear. Everyone kept feeling a sense of fear, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I want to point out that the, the word everyone in that verse contrasts with what's on both sides of it. Because in verse 42, it said those who had received his word. In verse 44, it says all those who had believed. And then in, ver in the middle, in verse 43, everyone. I think the word everyone means everyone. I think it means everybody in Jerusalem. It means believers and unbelievers. And I have to tell you, those for whom the signs and wonders were primarily intended were the unbelievers. That is one of the most consistent things that you will find in the Bible when it comes to God's miraculous works. When God defies the laws of physics and, and dramatically defies the expectations of men and does amazing things, supernatural things in his creation, he's getting the attention of unbelievers for two reasons. To attest to his message and to his messenger. Signs and wonders have the purpose to attest, to validate God's message and God's messenger. Just look it up. Do a word study sometime. You get, there's a bunch of online concordances you can go to and you can plug in signs and wonders. You can find every place that's used in the New Testament and the Old, and, and you'll find that pattern over and over and over. The purpose and the outcome of signs and wonders is to validate the message of God and the messenger of God, to, to confirm the truthfulness of the message and the authority of the messenger, the, the God-ordained authority of the one who bears the revelation. The result of the signs and wonders that God was doing through his apostles right here was that everybody was filled with fear. And that was really good. That's a right reaction to the fearsomeness of our God. And it's fascinating when you look at Scripture. I, I encourage you to go a little later here to uh, Acts 5 and the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Look at the reactions of the people in the church to, to the fearsome thing that God did in that chapter. We'll get to talk about it later. And then look at the reaction of unbelievers to that same event. Unbelievers react to the fearsomeness, the manifest fearsomeness of God by running from God. Believers react to the, to the manifest fearsomeness of God by running to God. And that's what happens in Acts 5. After God, after the Holy Spirit slays two people who lied to the Holy Spirit, two professing Christians, the church is fearful, but also growing. People are coming. Those, those whom God is calling and has called react 
they respond to the fearsomeness of God by, by coming to God. It's the fear, the fear that attracts, the fear that attracts. When you know who it is that actually controls all blessing and all curse, and you know that he sent his son to die for you and make you his own, you go toward him, not away from him. But the thing that I most want to point out to you here uh, about uh, the verse 43 and the miracles, the signs and wonders, is how that theme does not continue in this passage. God had just done an astonishing thing that nobody had ever seen before. But when it comes to the, the activity that characterized the brand new church, they didn't spend a lot of time pondering that. They didn't spend a lot of time continually devoting themselves to that. In fact, that doesn't fall under the four things that they were continually devoted to. And that's important. That's important. Professing Christians who never move away from a focus on the sensational and experiential to the pure, unadulterated milk of God's Word spend their lives as babies. And I've met quite a few of them. There are so many people who, who profess to trust in Jesus Christ, but their life revolves around some, some event or some ecstatic experience or the pursuit of an ecstatic experience. In fact, there was a whole church called Corinth that was characterized by that misplaced priority. They were always after the sensational. And as such, they were, they were shallow in their understanding of the Word of God and the way of God. But these believers, in, who are all babies in Christ in Jerusalem, they were continually devoted to the word of the apostles, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Not to signs and wonders. We should pay attention to that. The second activity that Luke lists for us is fellowship. We already saw that the first activity, uh, devotion to the teaching of God's word, is really un unbreakably connected to the second activity, fellowship, because we, we share God's word with each other. It's in the context of life and relationship in the body of Christ that the word gets propagated by all of us to all of us. But Christian fellowship does not end when we have spoken to one another what we find in God's word. Christian fellowship is doing life together as brothers and sisters forever. Brothers and sisters forever. Uh, in Daryl Bach's great commentary on this book, he, he says that the Koinonia is the Greek word. The fellowship that, that is described here is, quote, a real sense of connection to, between, and for each other. I love that. To, between, and for each other. The first believers did life together. They shared life in every respect, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and materially. And it's that last part, materially, that I want to drill down on a little bit because that's what Luke does right here. He takes pains to zero in on that vitally important aspect of genuine Christian fellowship. Verses 44 through 47 
he says, and all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Remember that, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. At the very heart of Christian fellowship is mutual care. It's Christians taking care of Christians as instruments of God. God is the source. We're just instruments. But he means for us to be very active instruments in his provision for his people. And he means for all of us to be active instruments. All of us. Nobody gets to sit on the bench in this regard. Now, anytime a passage starts talking about money and possessions, some Christians start looking for escape clauses. But beloved, this is an all-in proposition in this passage and throughout the New Testament. If we value money and stuff more than we value the love of our brothers and sisters, this passage will and should give us a whole lot of heartburn. But I want to make sure we don't make one particular mistake This is not enforced communism. In Paul's letters, there are repeated references to believers who hosted the church in their houses. In that painful episode in Acts chapter 5, we'll see when Ananias and Sapphira sold a property and they lied about how much it was worth. Peter said to them, said to Ananias, while while that property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? This is not a negation of, of individual ownership of property. That's not what this is about. This is about voluntary, love driven care for the needs of every saint by every other saint. And it's about exercising that care with absolutely everything that God puts into your hands. Everything. Your time, your emotional resource, your money, your house, your car, your clothes, whatever you've got, you you put it on God's altar and you say, okay, God, how do you want me to use this to build up your church? We we see a, a marvelous picture of that same attitude of the heart in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 with regard to the the Macedonian saints who in their poverty begged the Apostle Paul for the privilege of participating in contributing to the needs of a very needful body of believers. And guess which body of believers it was? This one! It It was this body later on in Jerusalem that became that became very, very painfully impacted by persecution, and they were in great poverty. And the Macedonian, the poor Macedonian Christians said, Paul, let us participate. Love-driven, love-driven, generous. Uh, The sharing together of every blessing that we received from the hand of God that characterized the first Christians was a real-world fellowship 
that was entirely uncoerced. And if we miss that, we'll get this very badly wrong. The love that God creates in his people, for his people, is genuine, generous, and joyful. The three J's, right? That's a joke. Our old nature looks for rules. But there was no fellowship checklist here that the Christians clicked off so they could know that you know, they were in, in good shape, a healthy church. That's not what this is about. The rule in operation here is the rule of godly love. And when you love, when you love somebody, you don't, you don't look for how little you can do for them. You look for how much you can do for them. Luke's words here in verse 46 are marvelous. They did all of this with gladness and sincerity of heart. That reminds me of Romans 12, 9, where Paul says, let, love, let your love be without hypocrisy. And 1 Peter 4, 9, where Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I don't know about you, but there have been a few times when I was hospitable with complaint. Be hospitable without complaint, without hypocrisy, from the heart. This is not burdensome duty. It's not programmatic. It's organic. This is the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts that he has knit together as one, producing the three J's. Generous, genuine, joyful love. Love that loves to serve and to bless on Christ's behalf. And you know what? That kind of love only happens in one kind of heart. And that's the heart upon whom God has lavished his amazing love in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John says in, in 1 John 4? <laughs> Look at that, 1 John 4, just a couple of verses. Start at verse 9, if I can get to it. 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested, played out in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then verse 19, we love because He first loved us. That's where this kind of love comes from. The love that God poured out on us at the cross through Jesus. So whenever you find it hard to love a fellow sinner with everything that you have, God's cure is to look again and look harder at what he did for us at the cross when Jesus died in our place to make us God's treasured possession forever. God's inheritance. The third continual and devoted activity in this passage is the breaking of bread. There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about whether the, the breaking of bread described here is the Lord's table or if it's just eating a meal together. And my answer to that, to that conundrum is yes. It's both. In Acts chapter 20, it's pretty clearly when they're breaking bread as they gather together on, on the first day of the week, it's the Lord's table. This, the Lord's table is not 
in the practice of the early church was not a separate thing from having a meal together. They took the Lord's table as they were having a meal, which, by the way, is exactly what happened on the first Passover. I mean, the first church's Passover and when Jesus created the Lord's Supper. It was in a meal, the Passover meal. This was not also, this was not a separate event from fellowship any more than it was a separate event from continual devotion to the Word of God. The Lord's table, the breaking of bread together, the eating of meals together, was part of the Christian lifestyle. And when Christians met and ate and then broke bread together and took the cup together to remember Christ and to look forward to his coming, they did so as part of fellowship, and they did so in acknowledgement of the, of the revealed truth of God through the apostles. It's all tied together. Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. All of the activities that Luke sets before us here are part and parcel of life together as the people of God. And that, of course, also includes the fourth continual and devoted activity of the church, which is prayer. Now, I know there's discussion among some about whether, the, because it's actually plural with the, with the word the in front, the prayers, if it was talking about some kind of formal prayers, maybe a carryover from the synagogue worship. But in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, the the is there, and it's definitely not talking about that because it's talking to Gentiles. I believe this is, this is a reference to prayer in all its manifestations. Prayer is part of the life of the body. It's an indispensable part of the life of the body. If you are a dependent person, you depend. And the way we as dependent children of, of God acknowledge that dependence is by praying, by coming to God and very, very deliberately confessing to him Everything that he says is true of us, of him, of our relationship with him, certainly of our dependence on him. Uh, continual devotion to prayer is one of the most frequent hallmarks that we find in the New Testament of the church. Again, even before Pentecost in Acts 1.14, it says when it's just 120 of them, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That's the same verb that we saw here twice, continually devoting. Um, Colossians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. You, you see a lot of verses about this. Well, I hate to do it, but I must wrap up. Uh, here are a couple of points I want to try to drive home. First, body life was never, Christian body life was never and only on Sunday proposition in the temple, and from house to house during the week, Christians got together, and they did life together, and they shared their stuff together, and they took care of each other together. All of these activities of the church are together activities. I love a statement I heard in a sermon by an old Scottish preacher I like to listen to named Eric Alexander. <laughs> he said, do you notice here in verse 47 that when Jesus saves people, he doesn't merely turn unbelievers into believers. He adds them to the number of those who are being saved. 
he adds them to the number. That means they become part of something bigger than themselves. And that's absolutely true of every person whom God has saved. He has made you part of something way bigger, way more impactful in this world than you will ever be. And that is the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Ray Steadman years ago said is the continuing incarnation of Christ in the world. That's what we are. We are the continuing incarnation of Christ in flesh in the world. He is our head, we are his body parts, and he's still doing what he's been doing, seeking and saving the lost and filling up his kingdom with people that he has brought out of the darkness into the light, and he does that through us. The very last thing I want to say is that a large and critically important part of how he does that is through the unity that he has created in his church. This is up on the board here is John 17, a few verses from, the, from what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus on the night that he was arrested, just before he was arrested. After he finished saying everything that he was going to say to his disciples before his death, he turned his attention to his father and he prayed for his disciples. And he prayed that God would sanctify them in truth. And he prayed many things for them. But, but then he said in these verses, he said to his father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And here's what he asked that they may, be, they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And here's the purpose clause. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And then he goes on. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, another purpose clause, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. <laughs> Amazing that you loved them even as you loved me. Beloved, if you want God to use you, to add to the number of those who are being saved, if you want him to use you to persuade people that Jesus is the real thing sent by the Father to earth to bear the sins of sinners, the, the dead of sinners, and to be raised from the dead and to, to give life to us who had no life, would, would have had no life ever apart from him. If you want to be useful to God in that regard, you and I have to do life together with gladness and sincerity of heart, overflowing to one another the love that God has lavished and showered upon us in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the world will take notice. And the world will know that the Father sent the Son. Loving Father, we thank you for this, uh, this, this beautiful picture of what the church was and is and must be. We pray that this local flock, Father, would manifest these, these four marvelous activities with continual devotion 
that is, that is from the heart, that is delighted, that is a labor of love because, Father, because you have, you have poured out your love upon us and you have granted to us the unfathomable riches of Christ for all eternity. You've made us your treasured possession, your inheritance, and you have made the triune God our inheritance forever. Father, we have every reason, we have every reason to love each other well and to show Christ off in doing so. We, praise, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.